0: Good morning. That song is always good to hear and and always good to sing. I'll ask you to turn to James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5. Excuse me. And as you're finding your way there, I just want to take a, a brief minute. And just uh, express my appreciation to Matt. Um, Laura and I came to church here some years ago now, getting to be a longish time. And the scripture says that, uh, that our, our progress should be evident to all. And uh, I've appreciated over the years uh, to see uh, Matt. His, his progress is evident just in the way that he leads us. And uh, don't have any flowers or gifts or money or anything, Matt. You're on your own there. But uh, I think I can speak for the whole congregation and say thank you for being faithful to our God, faithful to his word, and by virtue of that, being faithful to us, to each Sunday morning stand and preach to us sometimes what we want to hear, sometimes what we don't want to hear, but nonetheless what we do need. So, Matt, appreciate your faithful service to us. I think the applause is appropriate. There is a sense in which uh, part of what we work for is a well done, good, and faithful servant that the Lord has awaiting us. Uh, there's always a danger there because our heads can get big. So we'll do our best to give Matt a hard time in the middle of everything and <laughs> keep that from happening. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, James chapter 5. We're continuing on in in the series and uh, moving now towards the end of the book. And so uh, I'll ask you, now that you're settled in, I'll ask you to stand with me and read from James chapter 5. And we'll begin at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I invite you to pray along with me uh, before we get into the word. Lord, I thank you that you communicated truth about yourself to us so that we could learn to love you and understand your ways. And then again and again, you bring us back to your word so that our, our lives are ordered according to what is true. And you enable that process and you help us to understand and to see and you grant to us strength so that we do, can respond to what you call of us. And so I ask this morning that as we plunge into these verses that our hearts would be steady, our minds would be clear, our wills would be humble, and that we would yield ourselves to you and your ways. So I ask that your word would do its work in us and help us to rejoice because we taste of your goodness and taste of your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. As we get ready to address these verses, I just want to point out a few things kind of on the way to getting ready to talk about them. There are some words that are interwoven in the verses that are similar in their meaning. You may have picked up on them as we made our way through. So to lay some groundwork, it'll be helpful to point out uh, some, of the, some of the words that occur. And one of those is the word patient. And it occurs three times, twice in verse 7, and then it occurs again in verse 10, But there's also some sister words or similar words later in the passage that deliver the same concept to us. And so we find in verse 11 the words steadfast and steadfastness. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that those words are variably translated. Sometimes the same root word will be translated as steadfast, and other times it will be translated as patient. And there's a second Greek word there that likewise is sometimes translated as steadfast and sometimes st- translated as as patient. So it's, it's a similar uh, concept, the similar idea that is working its way through these verses. So now the section that we came to begins with the words that says, be patient therefore, and as we say again and again, whatever, whenever we see the word therefore we need to see what it's there for. And so when you look to the immediate context just above it that Matt talked about last week, it seems that the instructions in verses 7 through 12 have a direct connection to what is said in verses 1 through 6 that we'll discuss in just a few moments. But there's also a similarity inside of James chapter 1, the very first chapter that we went over when we got into the book of James. And it seems like James, now that he's at the end of his book, is pulling together concepts that were in James chapter 1, and he's marrying them now to some concepts that are in James chapter 5. And he's pulling these together at the conclusion of the book, and he's attaching bookends, as it were, to his letter to the, to the scattered um, believers. So I'll, I'll say this to you, and just you may recount or remember what it says in James chapter 1. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you do lack wisdom, if you're having difficulty understanding how these trials are supposed to work their way out in your life, ask of God. He gives generously and to everyone without reproach, and it will be given to you. Or later in James chapter 1 at verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a sense in which these verses that we read earlier, 7 through 12, are connected directly with James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. But there's also a broader sense in which it's connected to all the suffering that James has been talking about since James chapter 1. The hardships that were described in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 were hardships as it related to rich people taking advantage of the poor believers. And those kinds of things that were going on in their life could lead believers to question why it is that God doesn't intervene. God surely has the power to overcome the rich people. So why does he not step in and intervene and overcome them? The setbacks that they were facing in verses 1 through 6 were not just temporary setbacks. That is, they threatened to be lifelong setbacks of financial uh, loss. So in the face of that kind of hardship, some questions begin to arise, or at least they tend to arise. Why does God not step in? Why does God not alleviate hardship? And we can have the same questions today. When things go on in our lives that God could, if he so chose, intervene and, and countermand, if that's a good word, he could push, push them off. But he does not do that sometimes. So sometimes we ask the question because of things that are going on in our own lives. And sometimes we ask these questions because they're going on in the lives of people that we, that we know and that we love. But the questions, even though they're reasonable questions at least create the threat that of undermining our walk with the Lord. And I think that is what James seems to be approaching here as he talks to us at verse 7. And so in light of the suffering that is going on in their lives and by virtue of application, in light of the suffering that is going on in our lives, what are we to do? And verse 7 says this very simply, very plainly. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. What should these believers do, and what should we do in the face of hardship? Getting even was not part of the plan. They weren't supposed to try to find some way to inflict pain on these rich folks in some kind of guerrilla warfare where this minority contingent somehow produces pain on behalf of the rich people. There was an outside force that was acting on these believers, it was a force that they could not change and they needed a way to grapple with it whatever unfairness they faced james is encouraging them to be patient and to be patient all the way until the lord comes back again and so we see it in chapter 7 i mean uh, chapter 5 verse 7 again where it says be patient therefore brothers and now it says until the lord returns if you noticed, as we read through those verses earlier, the return of the Lord showed up three times in our text. It shows up at verse 7. It shows up at verse 8. It shows up at verse 9. At ver- verse 7, it talks about the certainty of the Lord's return. At verse 8, it talks about the, nece- uh, the nearness of the Lord's turn. And in verse 9, it talks about the seriousness of the Lord's return. There are some things that followers of Christ believe They sound strange to people. One is that the Son of God came to earth and died. A second one is that Jesus rose again from the dead. And a third is this, that Jesus is coming again. All of these are central to the good news of the gospel. We believe other things as well, but these things are central. The coming of Jesus the first time, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus a second time. And since those things are central to our faith, they should also be central to our lives. It likely should concern us that the return of Christ factors so little into our thinking in our daily lives. If we are not careful, we're going to develop a spiritual myopia so that we can only see what is just in front of us. We'll be nearsighted and blind and forget that we have been rescued from our sins, as Peter says. Technology, for all its good, for all the great things that it has brought to us, has a tendency to undercut the, our wonder of God. And coupled with technology comes affluence very often. And affluence has the, the tendency to undercut our dependence on God. Both of those things... Threaten to make us think that the return of Christ is far off, and because it's far off, that it is not very important to our actual, normal, everyday, ordinary lives. But poverty, which these believers are facing, and suffering both have a way of awakening a yearning for Christ's return. Poverty and suffering have a way of severing our attachment to what is temporary. If you trace the songs of people who have little in this world, you, you hear something very interesting. I've, I've listened lately to songs that came out of the mid-1900s that uh, my family listened to when I was younger. And a lot of the people who wrote the songs, and certainly the people who sang the songs, were, were still close to the soil. That is, they didn't go to food line to get their food. They, they put it in the ground and did whatever you do to make food grow, and then they ate that food. Clearly, I'm a product of my times. But because they were so close to the soil, they still consciously depended on God. So when they would pray something like, give us this day our daily bread, they meant just that. We pray that, but all of us know we can just go down to food line and get it. And the principle underlying should still be there for us, but that the... Practicality of of utter dependence on God to provide the things that we need is somehow undercut by the affluence of our of our society if we are not careful. So these folks who wrote these songs reflected their reality. And so they would write things like this song that maybe you've heard, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. It may lack some filling out biblically, but there is a truth behind it that we need to grab hold of. That this world, in fact, is not our home. This is not the final resting place. They at least, some of those songs anyway, had a profound understanding that the world is not our final destination. Some people have co-opted the songs, and now they sing them because they like the tune, not necessarily because they like the truth. But you've probably heard the song, Some glad morning when this life is O'er." over, I'll fly away. I'll fly away. And if I could remember the song now, I'd quote the rest of it to you, but hopefully you've got it in your own mind and, and can fill in the blanks. But that is what Scripture tells us. That there is coming a day when this life, as we see it, as we know it, will come to an end. History is moving forward, not in a cycle of endless re- return, but it is moving forward in an arrow, and it's headed to a point when, when at last, the author of this story will step onto the scene, and declare that it is over. And he will begin to set what is right, set right what is wrong, and he'll, be, he'll bring his glory and his gladness to us. At least for those people who sang those songs and wrote them, there was a constant reminder to keep a loose grip on what has to vanish so that we can cling tightly to what is eternal. Because when our hands are full of what is temporary, there's nothing left to grab what is eternal with. And so sometimes the entering of suffering or the entering of poverty, the entering of unsureness, allows us to release those things that we much inevitably have to give up. Affluence and comfort fog our understanding of what we're longing for. You may remo- recall from English class one of the late poets, William Wadsworth, who was no believer whatsoever, and he wrote a wrong slant poem, meaning that it, it, the, the summary of his poem wasn't accurate. But the title to his poem and the first words of his poem were this. The world is too much with us. And those that's seven words of truth. The world is too much with us. If we expect the world to deliver what only heaven can give, we're going to be perpetually impatient. Because we must have now what God has promised later. James insists that the return of Jesus is a critical element for undergirding Christian maturity. That is, we're not going to become mature saints unless we recall the second coming of Christ and that it's not only a real fact, but that it's a soon fact and that it's a serious fact. It might be that a fair amount of our spiritual neurosis can be traced to our forgetting that Christ is coming and that this world cannot be made fully right until he does And sometimes we get so bent around the axle, whatever that means. We get frustrated, bent around the axle, trying to make everything in this world right when it cannot be made right. You cannot take the unlimited contours of heaven and squeeze them down into the limited confines of this earth. It cannot happen. And so we ask for more out of things than they were ever designed to give. And of course it leaves us impatient. And that is partially why James says be patient. Fertile soil for growing patience is not what happens in this life but what will happen in the next. History will tell us that many times if you do wait, good things will come in this life. But history also teaches us that many people have waited in this life and never received what they hoped for. The only way To be happily patient in this life is to rest on the promises of God for the life eternal, the one that is coming. C.S. Lewis talks about this just a bit in his book, The Mere Christianity. I'll read two paragraphs here. This is what he says. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He clarifies it a bit further. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to awaken it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so... I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same if we can grab hold of that and remember that we were not made for this world, it will keep us from being so frantic and asking the world to give us what it was never designed to give. That's the first part of verse 7. The second part of verse 7 says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So here is the illustration. The illustration is of a farmer. Excuse me. The farmer tills the soil and he plants the seed. And then he waits. And in that part of the world, he would wait for both the um, early rains and then the late rains. There weren't any sprinkler systems to distribute water to his crops. There wasn't any way to seed cloud or cloud, seed the clouds to bring about rain. He had done what he could, and then he was dependent on the Lord to send rain. We are too. We just forget. Because it seems like I can just run down the street and get what I need. No amount of worry or fretting could change the circumstance. The best thing that the farmer could do was to queue up his podcast to the Sermon on the Mount and listen to Jesus remind him that since God takes care of birds and God takes care of flowers, then God will take care of him. And he likely needed to put it on replay again and again and again. He can't force rain. He can do his work, but he cannot force rain. You probably are familiar with the phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men. It's from a poem by Robert Burns. And in that poem, uh, the farmer is, is plowing his fields. And as he's plowing his fields, he happens to destroy the burrow of a mouse, which is where a mouse lives. I had to look it up. I didn't know. But that's what it's called, a burrow. The irony is that the farmer is carefully constructing his fields, and in the process of carefully constructing his fields, he destroys the carefully constructed mouse house, mouse burrow, And so the best laid plans of the mouse have no control over the destruction of his home. But the farmer's planting a field over which he has no control. And so the best laid plans of men And the best laid plans of mice are both subject to troubles that they cannot prevent and they can be destroyed by what what they cannot stave off. The only thing that can keep a person's internal world from churning is trusting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. That is the farmer and we alike should wait patiently, trusting that not only does God have the power to produce rain, but that in his goodness, God will provide the rain that we need. That's the illustration. Verse 8, first part, brings the, the application. You also be patient. The farmer works, but then he waits. The application is just unmistakable. Be patient. It's not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Patience is rooted in a strong belief in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And it anchors itself in the future promises that God has given to us. That leads us then now to verse 8. Verse 7, be patient. Verse 8, it says this. uh, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. God has set about to make us steady saints over the long course of our lives. It won't be a quick work, but it will be a deep one if we allow him to do his work. He set about to make steady saints of us over the long course of our lives. Listen to some of these verses from the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The word strengthened is the same word established. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may, the God, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 2 Thessalonians 2 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and may he establish them in every good word and work. And 2 Thessalonians 3 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And then one final one from 1 Peter chapter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is intent on establishing us and strengthening us as saints. But this text says to us, establish yourself or establish your hearts. We need to work on this too. It's not just if we go through life bumbling about and paying no attention to what God is at work doing, that it has its full effect. Just like so much of scripture, we join with God in the work that he is doing. And so we need to step into this. And the, the word that sticks in my mind that helps is established also in some places is translated as steady. So, so be patient in verse 7. Be steady in verse 8. I have a brother-in-law who's just an outstanding man. And if, if he ever listens to this, I'm going to deny I said that. But still, he's from the country and we worked together for a period of time and was always coming up with something that I'd never heard of before. Things like, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to reach down your throat and grab you by the belly button and turn you inside out. Or another one, um, that biscuit is so good, if you put it on your head, your tongue would beat your brains out trying to get to it. (laughs) So he always had something like that. But as I said, we worked together for a while. And we, we would build various things. And if we were building a frame or, or something along those lines, we, ne- we needed the frame to be square in order for it to be stable. If weight leaned against the frame and pushed it out of plumb where it was no longer straight and stable, it would get unsteady and it would be unable to hold the load that we needed it to hold. So... In that circumstance where the frame got off kilter, Joel would say that the frame got cattywampus. Is that a familiar term to anybody? A couple of people understand this term. What he meant was that it was crooked and it wasn't going to be able to hold up under the, under the pressure of what was going on because it had gotten unsteady. It had gotten A kilter, it had gotten sideways, and so there was no way it was going to sustain the weight that it was designed for. And what James wants us to do is to take care that we don't become cattywampus Christians. We don't want to be like that. If something is slightly askew, then it can threaten the strength of the whole. And so there are some times where we need to grab hold of ourselves and talk to ourselves and reestablish ourselves and and be steady, relying certainly on the strength of the Lord, but sometimes we need to have some stern words with ourselves to remind us that we are not living for this world, we live for the next. There's been multiple times in my Christian life where I've I've felt myself getting cattywampus. I needed to sit down and talk to myself. And I'm sure that you've been in the same circumstance. And when we're feeling that way, it's good to go back and reattach, reattach some anchor points in what is true. There's been multiple times when I sat down with the songbook in hand, and I steadied my soul by singing the lyrics to this song. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend. Through these thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake... To God the future, just as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. Everything now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The winds and waves still know his voice who ruled, ruled them while he lived below. It's good to establish some anchor points in your heart. The ones that help me may not be the ones that help you. We're all made differently. We all process information differently. We've all interacted with various things in different ways. So you don't want to narrow yourself into, into the help that is, that is what I'll call my help. But you do need some anchor points that you can recall. The ones that help me, that I frequently return to, to steady my heart, are, are these three things that the Christ who suffered for me will never let me suffer alone. And I've had to call my heart back to that again and again. To the words of Isaiah that says, in all their distresses, he too, speaking of God, was distressed. The Christ who suffered for me will not let me suffer alone. Secondly, Christ proved his love for me when he died in my place and was resurrected from the dead. And nothing, nothing, Nothing will ever improve on that. Not the influx of money. Not the influx of fame. Not the influx of education. Not the way that my family treats me. Not the way that my friends treat me. Not the way things go at church. Nothing outruns the fact that God loves me based on what Jesus did on the cross for me. And so everything after that is not nearly as important it begins to lose its significance. And it helps my heart not only be established and be steady, but it helps my heart to be patient. Because everything else will fade away over time. The third thing is that Christ, the Christ who lives intercedes on my behalf. He prays for me. And you, if you're a follower of His. And He will complete the work that He's begun in us. Those may not be the anchor points that steady your soul. But find some. Look to the promises of God. Don't go to the mirror and talk to yourself about how good you are. Go to the Word of God. Find a promise that's anchored in eternity and hold to that. Be steady. And here is why. It says at verse 8, You also be patient, steady your hearts, and here's why. For the Lord will return soon. Be patient, be steady. And for the second time, we're told that the reason for doing this is that the return of Christ is near. However long we endure trouble, it's just a brief time. I'm not minimizing or diminishing the reality of sorrow. We are not called to be Stoics who empty ourselves of any kind of passion or feeling and just robotically make our way through life. Jesus wept, And we will too. But Paul does tell us in Corinthians that that in comparison to eternity, our hardships are light and temporary and momentary. However long we live on this earth, it pales in comparison to eternal life. So Jesus wept at the sorrows of earth. But in the same chapter that he wept, he declared that he's the resurrection and the life. Human suffering, however deep. Can never untrue what is true. Regardless of how deep the sorrow is, regardless of how heavy the burden is, it cannot make what is untrue, it cannot untrue what is true. So here's the point steady your heart. Steady your heart. Steady your heart. Again and again, as you walk forward in your maturing Christian life, you'll have to return to this to steady your heart in in the promises of Christ. Now, interestingly, the next verse, verse 9 says, and we'll move quicker as we make our way through these verses, but verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Well, now, this is a very interesting instruction to us on the heels of being patient and on the heels of being steady. Now he tells us, don't grumble. The pressures of life that should be wrapped in the reality of Christ's return too frequently turn into complaints against our family and our friends. Just think this through a little bit. A grumbling heart has forgotten that God is in charge. If God genuinely rules... All things. Why do I grumble? If God is genuinely sovereign and oversees all things, why do I grumble? It tells us here that not to grumble, so that you won't be judged. A grumbling heart has forgotten that is the ju- that, that God is the judge. And if you remember from earlier in James, it says, "Where do the strivings and the fightings come from? It's because you want what you don't have." And so on. It's, it's the selfishness in our hearts. But God is the judge. And we ought not forget that he, he will f- uh, form all those things out as they need to be formed. Grumbling is evidence that we're not believing that God is good and sovereign. That is, what we're dealing with, we assume, is not from God's good hand. I grumble about my place in life and the people in life, in my life when I forget that God is good and that he sovereignly allowed the hardships of my life. All of this is based on this that the Lord will return now for the third time we we see this in these verses. I think it's helpful for me to remember that the grumbling is an escape hatch for those who are forgetting about the soon return of Christ. Because when I forget that He is returning soon, I I scatter off into some other thing, and I begin to complain about this and that, about the temporary things in my life. If the Lord is returning soon, why should I complain about the temporary setbacks of my brother or my friends, my my family? So grumbling reveals a short-sighted heart. So examine yourself. Do you grumble? If you do. Maybe re-anchor yourself in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. That leads us to verse 10, where there's another illustration. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And so he refers first to the steadfastness of the prophets. I will not spend a great deal of time on this. But they declared truth despite resistance. And they remained steadfast. They said what they needed to say, and they stuck by it. They also affirmed deliverance was coming, even though it was going to be a long time away. Um, so, Jeremiah talks about the nation of Israel returning back to the promised land, but it was going to be 70 years, but still he declared that it was the truth. And so, we look at the prophets and we see how they steadfastly stayed by the stuff. And uh, we send them as an, ex- as an example. And we consider them blessed because they did remain steadfast. And then the second illustration he gives here is with Job. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The King James Version uses the patience of Job, and that's kind of a a phrase that's come into our vocabulary. He has the patience of Job, we might say. It might be useful here to say that reading the book of Job I don't think I, I'm positive. I didn't understand it. I'm not dead sure I understand it all the way yet, but first time I started understanding it was when I read it in two sittings. Now, it's 42 chapters, so you have to have some time to read it. But if you read through it, you'll see the storyline that's going on. If you just parachute drop in, it's a little tough to, to figure out where you are in the book, but, but if you can have, carve out some time to read through it, you'll see what is going on and In chapters 1 and 2, we're given the reasons for everything that follows. But what's interesting is Job is not privy to what takes place in chapter 1 and 2 of the plans of God. And it's helpful for us probably to realize that we don't know what chapter 1 and 2 of our own lives say. God is setting about to do some things that we're going to work out in chapters 3 through 42, but that we just don't know about in chapters 1 and 2. And there's some comfort in that. The God is at work whether I realize it or not. And he sent things into play whether I'm aware of them or not. So you have Job. He wasn't privy to those reasons for his suffering. But he goes through this suffering without giving the details of it. He he comes to the end of the major initial portion of suffering. And it says the Lord, and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's somewhere around chapter 4. That pronouncement was great, but then the long-term struggle set in, and I find that in my life as well, that sometimes I'm great out of the gate, but then when real life starts going on and on and on, it gets gets wearisome, and so he has an ongoing hardship. He's got the difficulty of his friends. He kept trying to tell him, give him some not-so-good advice, and then you get to Job 23, and Job's saying things like he'd like to subpoena God and bring God to court so that he could express some of his questions to God. I think that's helpful. Patience doesn't necessarily mean silence. When I said a while ago that I would sing that song, Be Still My Soul, I didn't mention that frequently it's accompanied with tears welling up in my eyes. Because calling our hearts back to obedience and trust is not always an easy thing. There's a soul wrestle that's involved. And so the reality is that Christian maturity is largely just continuing to put one foot in front of the other and take a step forward and trust, and take another step forward and trust, and take another step forward and trust. trust. so that we can see the purpose of the Lord, which he states as compassion and mercy. So I'll finish up by just um, referencing that verse 12 just a bit, where it says to us, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. A little challenging verse to understand exactly where it fits, whether it fits the verses we just read or the verses that follow. But the thing that we can say this, that just as God will keep his word, we should keep ours as well. To be true in what we do. And there can be a tendency when there's difficulty and there's suffering there can be a tendency in us to, to make increasingly profuse promises to God. If you will alleviate this pain, then I will do this. We can begin to try to bargain with God as if His, his working in our lives are based on the strengths of our promises rather than the strength of His promise. And unfortunately, sometimes we start doing spiritual jumping jacks trying to get God's attention because we think that somehow he's forgotten us or lost track of us. Or we see other saints that God is working with and his work seems so prominent in their lives that they must be more worthy than we are, forgetting for the moment that none of us are worthy apart from the blood of Christ. But sometimes we begin to try to get his attention by all of our lavish promises, asking him to intervene. And if he does, we will do this, this, and this. And, and the verse is saying, no need to do all sorts of oaths; just simply let your yes be yes, your no be no. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we end in this way. Don't be frantic. God knows what he's about. God is working his work, both in the world and in us as individuals. Don't be frantic. Be patient. Be steady. We should remind ourselves of the good news. There was a time when we attached ourselves to the temporary pleasures of this life, assuming that somehow inside of them we could find eternal satisfaction And in the process of pursuing those things, we turned our back on on the God who created us and we at least ignored Him if we were not His out-and-out enemies. But even though we turned our backs on Him, He didn't abandon us. Jesus died for our sins and He was resurrected from the dead. And the good news tells us that whoever trusts that Jesus died in their place, that He paid the price of their sin, that person can become a child of God. And at the end of time, when this life is done, Jesus will return. And he will come as a judge to those who do not believe, but he will also come as a redeeming Savior for those who do. So I'd encourage you today, don't fall apart. Trust the God who saves us if you're a child of his. Be patient. Be steady. Be true. And I'll repeat this verse that I read earlier. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and granted us eternal comfort and hope through grace may comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. I'll ask you to pray with me while we get ready to um, have the Lord's Supper. So let's pray first. Lord, all of us are subject at times to to become frantic, fearing that our lives are falling apart in such a way that they'll never recover. And we forget to locate ourselves in heaven and constantly find ourselves in earth. And I pray that you would help us to remember that your return is sure and it's near. And I pray that you would help us to live with that in view. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen.